Hello, welcome back to Undressing the Issue. I'm Julia Alperovich, I'm your host. And on this episode, wanted to unpack something that I guess we hear about quite frequently. Therapists talk about all the time. Many of you probably heard the uh, snide expression Oh, they have daddy issues. They have mommy issues. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to unpack. Basically, what this is in reference to is family of origin. Uh, Foo, if you will. (laughs) So what is the foo? Basically, this is your, a person's primary caregiver's, uh, whether it's biological parents, an adoptive family, or however else a person grows up, those closest to them, uh, the first group that they're a member of, basically, that is your family of origin. So this is important because we're not just talking about the people. Obviously, if it's an expression, if it's this cliche thing where we talk about daddy issues and mommy issues, there's more to it than just the names of the individuals. So the reason why this is important and why this comes up in therapy a lot is because we're referring to all of the dynamics and the emotional relationships and the modeling and all of the ethics and standards and unspoken truths that get passed down by a person's family of origin. So there's this interrelated connection that somebody has when they're being raised to their primary caregivers. They... uh, experience similar emotions, they're affected by the emotions of others, and there are other dynamics that are going on. So living in a group, whether it's your family or it's your adoptive family or otherwise, there's certain things that we tend to be mindful of, like the needs of others around us the expectations of others around us, and some of the negative moods and emotions of others around us. We are aware of it and we're mindful of it. The other thing that tends to happen when we live in a group is that we tend to look to those other folks that we're living with for support, for approval, for attention, for some type of acceptance, nurturing. Basically, it turns into this series of interactions and exchanges that create a type of connectedness and a pattern of reactivity. So we figure out how to deal with certain things. We see how others deal with these things and we learn and we model them and we sort of get in line. We conform. 
Now, when there are certain stressors in this group, this can create issues that are lasting for a child that's growing up around this. So some of the main things that tend to happen that are really impactful are, for example, when you have, uh, not to be heteronormative, but if you have a mom and dad, biological, adoptive, foster, doesn't matter. Let's say you have a mom and dad. Maybe you have a mom and mom. Maybe you have a dad and dad. Maybe you have two people who are uh, non-binary, but they're in a long-term committed relationship and they're acting as co-parents. And let's say there is conflict or discord in their relationship. That's going to be felt by the members of that nuclear family, of that group. Another thing that's impactful is when one of those caregivers, one of the co-parents, or if it's a single parent family, uh, if one of the parents or the only parent has some type of dysfunction of their own, meaning if they have some type of mental illness, medical problem, addiction, this tends to affect especially the younger members of that family because it's going to impair that caregiver's ability to be fully emotionally available and present to those that they're supposed to be caring for. Another stressor that can happen in these dynamics is if one or more of the children in that group, in that nuclear family, has some type of impairment or if more than one of the children does. So if there's a, some type of a developmental disability or some other type of handicap or illness or some type of behavioral disturbance, mental problems, whatever the case may be, this creates stressors on the entire group because that particular child or children are going to require more attention than the rest. Therefore, the rest may feel like they're lacking individualized attention. Maybe they feel neglected, forgotten, overlooked. So the last component that is worth mentioning that could be a stressor in these types of uh, groups is emotional distance. When people are just disconnected, there isn't necessarily any pathology or problem, but people don't talk about things. There is a lack of vulnerability or any type of personal disclosure or sharing. We don't talk about things. Everything remains on the surface. There's also a lack of reliability from one person to another that they will be supported if somehow a need comes up. There's just this arm's length distance between everybody. And that can also be stressful. And even if it's something that that family member may deny, no, we're close, we're great, we love each other, oh, we're the perfect family. First off, there's no such thing. But still, they may not have awareness of it or have any desire to even admit it. But the reality is, 
it may be there and it may be setting some type of a precedent for the members of that family, especially the younger ones. Now, there are certain types of problems that get passed down to children. So these types of stressors, when they're around, right, first off, the people that are involved in them tend to become preoccupied. They tend to have limited ability to be available to all of the other family members that may need them. They may be inconsistent, which will create a sense of fear from the other family members of, you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to get. This family member happens to be really unpredictable and inconsistent, especially in the case of addiction or mental illness, certain types of mental illness. So nobody really, the message is very clear. The narrative becomes, it is not necessarily a dependable source of support or reassurance or safety, this relationship, meaning this relationship is not a reliable source of that. I can't count on it. I don't know how I'm going to find this person today. I don't know if they're going to have the ability to show up or not. And what happens is it leads to some distance. Well, possibly out of a out of the sake of safety. I want to maintain a safe distance so that I don't get hurt, so that I don't feel like I'm rejected or I don't feel once again like I'm not important. All of those things over time, when they happen repeatedly, can turn into small t traumas. See my earlier episode on trauma where I explain what that is. So When children are in a family system where there are issues like these, some of the things that can end up happening are that these children can develop relationship sensitivities, meaning they can have a higher than normal need for attention or approval. When they don't get it enough or when it's not given to them consistently, it becomes something that they crave and constantly seek. They can also have trouble dealing with expectations. Well, I can't get my hopes up because I've been let down so many times before. I have this expectation of my primary caregiver to show up for this event or for me at a difficult time in my life. And I want to be able to expect that and have it actually come to fruition, but I've been let down so many times. And so there's this holding out hope, kind of, you know, taking whatever breadcrumbs you can get, but never getting the whole cookie and wanting it desperately. There's also a lot of blaming. So children, especially younger children, tend to blame themselves. This is a phenomenon called splitting, a little psycho babble for you. So children are naturally egocentric, right? If you ever watched a child play a toddler or elementary school age, what you see is that they know what they want. They want it when they want it. They get upset if they don't get it. And for them, 
The basic skill of sharing is still something new that they're learning and they haven't perfected it yet. They still struggle with it because they're only aware of themselves and even that awareness is still fairly new for them. So what happens to children, if you think about a baby, for example, the fourth trimester as they call it, a newborn, human beings are born completely dependent upon their mothers for survival. We're not like horses where we're born and two hours later, we're standing on all fours and we can walk around and we can seek food and basically be self-sufficient. Humans are completely dependent upon another human to keep them warm, safe, fed, clothed, all of those things. So in order for that to happen, human beings come with this built-in trust. You have to trust that whoever is around you, their touch, their closeness, their care for you is for the concern of your well-being, that they are safe. If, if humans didn't trust the first people that they came around, they wouldn't survive. This is a survival mechanism that's built in. We inherently trust our caregivers. We have to for our survival especially in early childhood. Now, what that translates to is that as a child grows, develops, gets older, and let's say that primary caregiver, for whatever reason, whether it's a problem of their own or some type of stressor that they're dealing with or whatever else, is inconsistent in providing adequate care to that child. Or they're somehow neglectful, abusive, they inflict pain or harm on that child, they make that child feel uncomfortable or feel like they're in danger, unsafe. For children, because kids are egocentric and because they have that just inherent trust, the split comes in when they can't actually wrap their minds around, their psyche is not equipped to be able to blame their caregiver and actually see that their caregiver is doing something wrong. Instead, because they're egocentric, they turn inward and they blame themselves. For my mommy, daddy, whoever it is, it's my, the adult taking care of me, for them to be mad at me and hurt me, I must have done something wrong. I must deserve it. For mommy or daddy to not wanna be around me and they don't come home or I don't get to see them very often or they don't really wanna play with me or interact with me, it must be me. I'm not good enough. Children tend to turn inward. That is called splitting. Now, as kids get older, especially once they get to the age where they're visiting with their friends. They go to friends' houses, right? That first sleepover. Whoa, I didn't know that other families don't trim their toenails in the sink. What is this, right? All of those weird things. I mean, that's kind of gross in general. But <laughs> when, they first, when children first realize that other families are not like their own, that they interact differently, they eat different foods, they have different routines. This is eye-opening. All of a sudden they see that all families are different 
And maybe the way another family is actually feels better than the way my family is. And that's when all of a sudden those those critical thinking skills, even at the most basic level, start kicking in and they go, why doesn't my family do that? That feels good to me. It feels better than what I get at home. Why can't I have that? And this is sort of the catalyst for this process of comparison and reflection and self-awareness, which at some point, once that child's brain develops further to the point where they can see beyond themselves and they can start to differentiate between right and wrong and assess blame and responsibility where it belongs, it's only then that they can start to realize, wait a second, what my parents did wasn't because I was bad in some way, they were bad, they were in the wrong. I didn't deserve that. However, because that experience happens at such a young, formative age, it imprints. And that's where it can create some of these relationship sensitivities, these difficulties dealing with expectations, this self-blame. It turns into this deeply seated core belief, a negative core belief about myself. And it can extend into adulthood and start presenting as depression, low self-esteem, an anxious or preoccupied attachment style, referred to previous podcast episode on attachment theory too, but it also can lead to unhealthy relationship dynamics in adulthood. So, This is why looking at a family of origin is so important, not just the people involved, but how a person experienced being a part of that group during their developmental years. This is where our patterns begin. When we see inconsistency and we crave that consistency. We crave having a figure that we can rely on and depend on to be there to show up. And it just doesn't happen for us. That can turn into an adult that is just looking for love and willing to compromise their own needs for the sake of trying to hold down a partner. You can mistreat me. You can make demands that are unreasonable of me, but as long as you don't leave me, as long as you're still here and I have your attention, I will take whatever it is. I am scared of losing that because I was constantly losing it as a child and that was incredibly painful. It can also go the other way where that person as an adult maintains a safe distance because They're not accustomed to having some type of consistent emotional presence based on what their experience was of their family of origin. As a child, they never had it. So they don't depend on it. They don't want to get disappointed again. That feeling is all too familiar. So they keep a safe distance, right? They can also become 
overly preoccupied and feel responsible for the happiness of others or vice versa. They expect others to be responsible for their happiness. They have unreasonable expectations of other people. They continue to play these roles that they played in childhood. So, for example, for those children in their family of origin, let's say who are the oldest in their sibling position, who have parents who are inconsistent, let's say there's some type of pathology, whether it's addiction, mental illness, whatever the case may be, and the oldest becomes like a pseudo-parent. The term for it is a parentified child, where they end up taking on responsibilities in the family that are inappropriate for a child to have. And they become these caregivers. And in adulthood, they can become people who are perpetually caregiving to everyone around them. And it can come at the cost of them taking care of themselves. They may feel like they're not allowed to have their own needs or their own desires because the needs of those around them take precedence. And these can develop into really unhealthy dynamics. And you can start seeing this, especially in romantic relationships, when people are a little bit distant, when people don't like commitment or afraid of it or are dishonest or are manipulative. Yeah, daddy issues, mommy issues. Let's look at that person's family of origin, what their childhood was like. I'm willing to bet that there are parallels between how they react, how they experience relationships in adulthood to what their childhood looked like with their very first relationships, emotional connections, attachments, and bonds. This is basically the foundation of attachment theory. Now, why this is important is because not only do we in adulthood start to repeat some of these patterns and recreate some of these dynamics in our relationships, our romantic relationships, but this actually generalizes out to all relationships friendships, work relationships, our dynamics all across the board, how we carry ourselves, the role we tend to play, our level of confidence and self-esteem, the wallflower who tends to fly under the radar and go unnoticed, doesn't really like to be too loud or demanding, tends to stay quiet, be an observer, versus the person who I believe is called the Karen, who always calls the manager over and complains. And there's always something wrong, and her voice is the one that's always heard. She's the squeaky wheel, right? I would bet that there's some dynamics in Karen's family of origin that set the tone for this type of behavior and normalized it. And that at one point in time or another in her life, this was a matter of survival. So we can call them daddy issues, mommy issues, but really that's a very simplified way of touching on and referring to something that 
is much more robust than just acute euphemism. It's actually every human being's story. We all have some type of mommy or daddy issue. And it's not something that really should be used as a way to put someone down. We've all had our own experiences and our own families of origin. And to have a completely perfect childhood is a rarity. So in essence, please don't use those expressions first and foremost, but furthermore, consider looking into your own experience, really analyzing your own story of how you came to be who you are today and what has influenced that. And also give your parents or whoever it is that raised you some grace, because guess what? They had their own experience with their families of origin. They had their own mommy and daddy issues. We all did, and they were doing the best they could, as are we. But it does help to have some awareness of this, to have some insight, so that maybe, just maybe, you can break that pattern for yourself and improve the quality of your relationships and thus the quality of your life. I hope this has been helpful. Thank you as always for listening. And please, please forward any feedback, questions, concerns you may have to all of the very many social media outlets where you can find me. Until next time, thanks again.